Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, graduate researcher at Concordia University, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. Before we hop right into things, here's an idea of the kind of topics you can expect to hear us talk about on today's episode. So we get into the nitty-gritty of virtual reality gaming, And specifically, we answer three questions. How does cross-platform play increase immersion? How does asymmetry promote teamwork? And how does communication improve the gameplay experience for everyone involved? And what do these even mean? We're going to get into all that and more. So, here we go. Our guest today is Michael Smilovich. Michael completed his Master of Digital Media at Ryerson University, summer of 2019. His major research project called BirdQuest VR, a cross-platform asymmetric communication game, was a finalist in the student game competition at KaiPlay 2019, an international conference for research into gaming and play. His paper was published in the Journal of Applied Computing Machinery and was also awarded the Digital Media Creative Innovation Award from the Ryerson Master of Digital Media program. The research project focused on the role of spectators in virtual reality gaming, and included a completely functional proof of concept app. This app was a game played between one player in a virtual reality and another on a tablet. Early on in the app's development, it was accepted into the transmedia zone, an incubator for innovative projects pushing the boundaries of storytelling through art, narrative, and technology. Now, Michael works as a VR developer and metal vocalist, and has also been known to write from time to time. So that's quite enough for me. Uh, Without further ado, let's welcome Michael onto the podcast. Michael, how's it going? It's good. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's it's a pleasure. Um, Michael is a good friend of mine. We've known each other for uh, at least five years at this point. Used to work together at a summer camp, and we have both since gone on to uh, pursue master's degrees. So we, I guess we have that in common. For the listeners, uh, this is a podcast where we are trying to describe our research. Uh, Basically, today will be Michael attempting to describe his research in the simplest way possible, such that anybody can understand what it is that he did. I know, for one, that cross-platform asymmetric communication game is not exactly what I would call simple. So let's actually maybe work to break that down as a first introduction to Michael's research. How would you begin even explaining what it means to engage in a cross-platform asymmetric communication game? Sure. Yeah, we can break that down. Uh, We can just go one term at a time, I suppose. Yes. We start with the cross-platform. The idea of a platform in gaming is essentially something like Mac, Windows, let's say PC would be a platform. PlayStation might be another platform. Your phone is another platform. So games like Fortnite, let's say one of the most popular games that there is right now, supports cross-platform play between PlayStation, Xbox, and PC, and Switch, I think. I didn't know that. That's the first game that that does that. I haven't heard of any other game that does that. 
So there, there have been, there've been games in the past, but they really pushed it forward. They, they've pushed a lot of things forward by just being so big. A lot of games since then are using a similar sort of technology stack to achieve a similar thing. Mm, okay, technology um, stack. What in God's ooh, name baby. is a technology stack? It's just the stuff you're using. I'm sorry. I'll try to be more... Uh, <laughs> no, be absolutely. More. I like that you're smiling through this. Uh, it's going to be maybe painful at times, but it is my job to figure out what is a stack. A stack is just a bunch of different little pieces of code that you use together or little, uh, I suppose, pre-packaged tools. Sure. And the stack is the use of all those tools together. Mm-hmm. So as soon as something like Fortnite, which is created by Epic Games, uh, uses this cross-platform play, but I assume that other games by Epic with Epic support would use the similar kind of technology to support cross-platform play. They seem to have nailed it okay, so, at a so level that other games haven't. Epic Games has has created almost this like this this software add-on of some sort or some kind of code that they can then implement that allows for this cross-platform gameplay. And so it's like basically open access now within that company. Sure, yeah, and they're they're also a publisher, so they could probably strike a deal where they say, "Hey, you can use our cross-platform tech. We use your game. You know, everybody's happy." Okay, sure. I'm sure there's some people that aren't happy. There's always someone who's not happy. There's always somebody who ends up getting screwed over. Um, Um, Okay, so in terms of cross-platform, though, you would say Epic Games has kind of uh, led the pack. That's just a recent example, honestly, of cross-platform. What my game was in terms of cross-platform was taking um, a VR game and the idea of a mobile game on a tablet and having those be able to play together on the same sort of game instance, right? In the same game worlds, but on a different type of platform exactly had that been done before with any other two platforms sorry with 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 any platform and vr or was this the first intro to that there had been examples of it with vr uh there had been a few a lot of them were sort of done as an afterthought there are very few games that were built entirely around it but and there's also these games that you'd play in vr sort of where one person's in the headset, one person's in virtual reality, and someone else is on the computer, on the PC. Mm-hmm. But technically, the, the VR headset is often also running off the PC, if not the same PC. So technically, is it necessarily cross-platform, or I is see. it cross-device, or cross-medium? You know, we're getting <laughs> So there's technical. a semantic element here. Okay, oh, so oh, yeah. you wanted to go full cross-platform. You didn't want any ambiguity there. You said, here's a tablet. It's made by Huawei. And here is a VR headset made by Oculus and they've got nothing to do with each other, but we're going to bring two people into a room and have them inter- interplay through them. Yes. Unfortunately though, just to make things confusing, technically they're both running Android, but we're not going to get into that. Okay. All right. Does, does iPhone or, or Apple have any kind of hand in the VR world right now? Just now that you mentioned Android clearly does. Yeah. Well, so, so Oculus runs, the mobile Oculus headsets run off of, Android software. Mm-hmm. Apple has been biding its time. They've been buying up a lot of AR companies, augmented AR reality. Yeah, okay. So that's something like, like Pokemon Go, which is a bad example of augmented reality, but the best one we've got. In any case, Apple is sort of acquiring companies. I believe they're going to make a nice big play in the next little bit, maybe some AR glasses, but they're waiting for the market to 
to be ready, nice and juicy for them. They're letting others sort of pave the way and, and make those mistakes first. Sure. Okay. That's, that's a fair move. I don't have any Apple product, which is why I trust them because my trust has no, no effect on my actual usage or life. Innocent until proven guilty. They haven't wronged you yet. Exactly. Because they can't. So, all right. So that's the cross-platform element of a cross-platform asymmetric communication game. So let's talk about this asymmetry. So asymmetry in gaming or asymmetric gaming is super fun. Essentially, it refers to a game where the players have a different set of rules or abilities. So something like chess, not a perfect example, but chess is fairly symmetric. Both players have the same pieces and the same goal. They're both trying to take the king. Some might argue there's a small asymmetry because one of the colors goes first. Mm -hmm. But semantics, again. Sure. After uh, that first very, move, it's a symmetric game. Exactly. Yeah, something like Mastermind. Mastermind is the example I use often as an analog asymmetric game. Mastermind is a, is a game where it's a code-breaking game where one player has a hidden code of four colors and you take turns guessing them. They tell you if you have the correct color or the correct color in the right spot, you get 10 guesses or so. And because one player is the code breaker and one player is the code master, that game is inherently asymmetric. Cool. Okay. That makes sense. I'm actually a big fan of Mastermind. Very fun analog game. Not cross-platform. There's only one platform. The platform is about four and a half inches by about nine inches plastic, uh, polyurethane maybe. One platform, but asymmetric. So not what you were researching. They were a, a few years behind what Michael Smilovich was doing. No, exactly. And asymmetry actually in gaming is a lot more common now. If you look at sort of older shooters, let's say Counter-Strike, everyone had a fairly similar role. You were a soldier with a gun. Maybe there were different guns but you're trying to shoot the people on the other team. You're trying to kill the other people on the team. Everyone has the same job for the most part. I could right. be completely wrong. Again, not a Counter-Strike player. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we could you probably know. even go further back to even earlier games. You're right, actually. If we go way back to like, let's say- um, Pong. Pong, well, Pong is symmetric. I'm, I'm yeah, talking about early no, it, asymmetry. It, early asymmetry, oh. sorry, okay. Oh, never mind. No, you're, you're actually completely right. I'm talking about early symmetry in like, in like shooter games. Uh, let's talk like, um, What's it called? Unreal Tournament or one of those games. Like one of the earlier shooters, everyone's just flying around shooting each other. That's kind of what we thought the game should be. More recent games like Fortnite or Apex Legends or, or things. Sorry, not Fortnite. Again, terrible, terrible example. I misspoke. I meant Overwatch. Overwatch. If Overwatch, you know what, yeah. the problem is those are both compound words. Uh, yes. So that definitely occupies a similar space in your mental lexicon under the category compound words. You are forgiven. Perfect. Thank you. Amazing. So a lot of more, more recent team games have explicitly different rules. In general, it increases teamwork. By having these different rules, you get more teamwork and you get more immersion in the game. I think that makes sense. I've read about studies in, in, in more of the like psychology or the, the social science world where teams in real life that are working to solve a problem actually do better uh, when they are diverse in terms of cultures and ideas, et cetera. So that makes sense. Exactly. So, so they say if you were to give everyone the exact same kit or, or tools, everyone has a gun and like uh, a, med a med kit, you wouldn't necessarily get these like healers who decide like, ah, I'm going to 
heal more than I shoot because like they have the tools they have. They're probably just going to want to shoot the gun. But if you give players a hero whose gun is a healing gun, all they can do is heal. They just press the button, they heal. It's all they do. Then you, you create these much more effective teams and much more effective teamwork because they're just doing what their character does. They don't have to self-organize as much. So there is a game. I'm, I'm really not much of a video game player. So I think I might represent the majority of the listeners of this podcast. So we're on the same page here. I am aware because my brother plays League of Legends. This to me, I, I, it's, it seems like it's a game where everybody has their own kind of role. I don't know how much you know about that game. Would that be an example of an asymmetric game? Yeah, totally. So League of Legends, similarly to Overwatch's, is asymmetric within the team. So those games, I play a lot of Dota, which is similar to League of Legends. There's a huge, huge hero pool. So there's over 100 different characters with completely unique abilities. So that introduces some asymmetry. Unless both teams are playing the exact same heroes in the exact same positions, there's going to be some asymmetry there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so 99.9% of the time, you're playing an asymmetric game. Yeah, and that's what's almost... It's a really impressive thing about the design of those games that you can have a fairly even game often with these sort of, I mean, you can speak to the amount of possible combinations of heroes. If it's five on five and there's 150 heroes, mm-hmm. right? There's a very nice exponential number of possible <laughs> combinations. So to balance mm-hmm. a game like that, where no one lineup is unfair, where there's always a counter to another hero, it's much more complex than just giving everyone a gun and telling them to run around. Sorry, I'm, I'm calculating um, how many different <laughs> combinations there are. It would be 5.7 times 10 to the 21. So five uh, followed by 21 zeros, I believe. That's uh, 150 <laughs> to the power of 10. So anyways, uh, let's just say most of the time it's asymmetric because the, uh, the number of those that are actually all the same are probably much fewer. Although I did miss the last thing you said while I was uh, knee deep in my, in my calculator. That's fine. I missed the last thing I said too. Okay, fair enough. So, so cross-platform, we understand now. And the way that you implemented that was between uh, somebody wearing a virtual reality headset and somebody on a tablet. It was asymmetric in that each person on, in their respective platform was uh, using different tools, was following different rules, and was playing in different pools. Exactly. Okay. And the right. communication, I mean, I can get, I can explain the game itself if you'd like, now that we're Absolutely. rounding it out with communication. For sure, yeah. So we're, we're almost there. I, I think the, the last word game is pretty self-explanatory. So we can, we get into the introductory explanation here with communication. So please. Sure. So the way the game itself worked, if anyone's ever played Space Team, you can invoke that. Mm. It was heavily inspired by Space Team. Space Team is basically a mobile app where you need to yell instructions at your friends because you get something on your screen that describes something they need to do, but they don't have the instruction. You have the instruction. So the game mechanic is talking, communication, which I think is very interesting. It is quite a fun game and it can get very loud and very intense very quickly. I would recommend it. Space Team, go ahead, download Space Team, let us know what you think. Wow, it's our sponsor. Um, So to take a step back, basically the game was created around a problem that I found existed with virtual reality gaming. Before my master's, I had worked at a virtual reality arcade for maybe four months as a clerk 
So essentially playing all the games, knowing all the games, helping people with issues, prescribing games, all of that good stuff. Like and medicinally? I, well, you know, I wasn't licensed, of course, but right. someone came in and said, hey, I'm, you know, this age, I'm interested in these things. I've played virtual reality this many times. What's the game for me? I'll right. say, well, let me tell you, have a seat over there. Right. I'm 80. Your options. My name is Eugene. Uh, I'm, I've been retired for 20 years. I love crosswords. Oh, well, we have this VR crossword game where you could sit in a virtual kitchen doing crossword at the kitchen table. Yeah, it's amazing. It has this like a uh, pen peripheral. It feels like a real pen. <laughs> it even runs out of ink. Oh, no. And that's when you come in. That's why you have a job because the game pen runs out of ink. So you have to go refill it, right? Yeah, wow. That's, that's a very futile thought experiment. Futile, not futile like F-E-U-D-E-L. Yeah, sure. All right. Um, so <laughs> the game, uh, I worked at this virtual reality arcade and I noticed essentially, this is my sort of insight, is that, you know, not a controversial statement to say that VR is emerging, growing. Most people have not tried it yet. Maybe 10% of people have tried it. That could also be completely wrong. Mm -hmm. Most people haven't tried virtual reality. Okay. I can Somewhere confidently between say that. zero and 49. Yeah, I can confidently say that. At the arcade, you have these booths, people show up, but they show up in large groups. And for the most part, the games are single player. So people go in, they play VR. You can see what they're seeing on a screen. And it's sort of this fun touristy activity almost. But there's nothing for the people outside of virtual reality to do but watch. So you're a problem solver then. You were at this virtual reality arcade and you went above and beyond what your job description was, which was, I'm going to observe, see what's wrong with everything around me, and I'm going to kind of conjure up some solution. And that then became your, your thesis. Well, it's not quite a conscious thing. I'd like to think that I'm, I'm constantly judging everything around me and thinking sure. about all the ways it's wrong. The, the master pro master's program of digital media had a focus on entrepreneurship. And the way that you frame entrepreneurial endeavors is you need to be solving a problem. That's sort of the bootstrappy entrepreneurial mindset that they were teaching. Okay. So this project, I essentially tried to make every course I took, even if it was an elective within the program, contribute back to this project. So when I took a bootstrapping course, I was trying to run this game as a startup in a way. And that's where sort of the problem solving mindset came in. But in any case, uh, I suppose back to the problem itself, the, the spectators do not have a role in the game. And doing research into immersion, I found that communicating within a game world, let's say you're playing a game with your friend, you're on uh, audio chat and you say, watch out, there's uh, someone on your left. That increases your sense of immersion because you feel like you're in that game world. You're speaking within the context of that game world. Mm -hmm. In virtual reality, immersion is everything. The entire hook of the platform is that you're extra immersed. So the issue with having this setup where one person's playing and others are watching is if they communicate with you, if you say, hey, did you see that crazy thing that I just saw? Uh, or if they make a comment, that actually can pull you out of the game. That can break immersion. But if the spectators were somehow represented in the game and had an actual role to play, and you could see them in VR in some sense, and they could see you in some sense, let's say on a tablet, mm -hmm. then you could communicate and actually increase immersion rather than decreasing it, while also making this activity more accessible to more people at once. That's great. I, so you're basically maximizing the immersion. 
for the person in the VR and then incorporating, like basically doing that by virtue of incorporating their friend or somebody who's around. Yeah, the idea is just to allow for social interaction yeah. without reducing immersion and ideally increasing it. I, I didn't have an, uh, an immersion counter. I, did, I wasn't able to do it like full proper scientific design. It was more of a proof of concept demo type paper. Yeah. Okay. So I would love to get some details then on what exactly this gameplay looks like. You said it's called Bird Quest. So oh yeah, uh, how to do with birds and they're on a quest. I actually have played uh, this game. I played it in its very, very preliminary phases and there were some really fun things that I saw. So I'm going to let you take it away though and tell us kind of what the general framework and gameplay was like. Sure. I think the version of Bird Quest you played would have been the desktop one, right? Where you're in space and there, there's meteors flying at you. You can flaming chickens and stuff. And, and space sharks coming out of a black hole. Yeah. Oh, space sharks. I miss those space sharks. So, so that game, that sort of version that you played, I created in a month as my capstone project for an online course I took with Udacity. It was a nano degree. Okay. So I actually used that version you played, which was just this sort of quick single player narrative thing. It was mostly me just learning to make VR games. I took that and I actually used that to apply to both my program as a portfolio piece, but I also used it to apply to that startup incubator I told you about, the Transmedia Zone. Mm -hmm. And they essentially really helped me take this game and think about, all right, how do we reframe this? Like this is kind of a, an idea Basically, it's like birds in space. That is essentially all there was to it. They said, how do we take that and now make it into something that you can pitch, something that's innovative, that's pushing VR forward? It's mm -hmm. not just another VR game. How could you do something different? And that served both my sort of digital media major research project and the idea of this innovative startup. So I sort of tried to let those both fuel this project. Cool. So the game that I played was basically uh, everything before the colon. So BirdQuest VR colon and everything after that that you did in your master's was the cross-platform asymmetric communication game development. Exactly. You know, giving, putting the meat on the bones. While, I mean, uh, a chicken in space virtual reality game is, to me, already plenty. Uh, but it Not to the investors, you know. Not to the investors, exactly. I, I got no money in this. I just, uh, okay, no, that's great. So I will, I'll describe what the actual gameplay loop Please. was. Yeah. Uh, essentially one player put on a virtual reality headset. It was an Oculus Quest, so it was wireless. And I actually had it customized to look like the character whose name was Captain Nugget P. Rotisserie. He was a uh, space pilot chicken guy. Okay. Uh, he was on a, a mission. Honestly, there was a little paper I wrote on like why he was doing what he was doing. I don't really remember. He was looking for like a new <laughs> world. I think he was like searching Cluculus 5 or something. Okay. Um, Cluculus, nice. Yeah, and essentially you played as Hen, the other player, the human player. Played as Hen, H-E-N. It was like, that stood for something. Human and enterprise something. Yeah, navigator or something, navigator, right? Navigator, yeah. Um, so essentially you get two people to play this game. I say, who wants to be the chicken? Who wants to be the human navigator? The chicken goes into VR and they have this like chicken head on essentially mm -hmm. as this modification for the headset. That's actually part of it. That is to sort of immerse everyone in this game world and to make the fact that one person's in VR into a more performative thing, right? Sure. Everyone's already looking at this person. They already look ridiculous. 
So I think that we need to lean into that more as virtual reality developers, play it up, make them do ridiculous things. Um, there right. was some of that in the demo you played. You probably had to bend over and eat a bunch of chicken seed out of a bucket or something. Yes, I, I think I've wiped that from my memory now. <laughs> but yeah. I'm sure that I did something like that in the last two years. Yeah. yeah, so using humiliation as a game mechanic was really, really high up there for me. So anyway, <laughs> okay. one person goes into VR, they're the chicken. The other person is mission control and they have this tablet. The fun thing was on the tablet, as soon as the game starts, you can now see your friend who is in virtual reality represented on the tablet as that character. So as they move their hands in the controllers in real space, you see that cartoon chicken in this little window making those same movements. Mm -hmm. So immediately they, you're seeing them become the character in front of you uh, on your tablet. It becomes basically like a motion capture kind of thing. Exactly. Actually, these VR headsets really do amount to cheap, cheap motion capture with just sort of three points. You have your head, and if you have two controllers, you have the two hands. So I was over a network, I was passing that information across to the tablet. And basically you had your boosters and you had your roosters and you had to essentially, you would get a message in VR that says, let's say we need to set the roosters to two. And then the person on the tablet would have to press a button and say, okay, done. And they would get a message. Okay, the VR chicken needs to activate the left thruster. And so you tell them that, you have to say it, activate left thruster, they reach out in virtual reality, press a button, and then it goes to the next thing. And you need to get through as many instructions as you can to move flight years, and your score is how many flight years that you can travel. <laughs> flight years. Oh. Okay, so at the beginning, I know that, uh, that I did mention at the end of your intro that you also write time to time. I'm sure there, was, there must have been a, a writing component to this where you had to, of course, come up with all of these very clever terms that also helped with immersion, creating the space, making it realistic. How much time, realistically, did you spend just thinking about how you were gonna make puns in this game versus actually designing it? The puns sort of just came about naturally okay. as I was iterating on it. it. It was a very iterative workflow. So I rebuilt the game from scratch maybe five or six times in in the year that I was doing this project. Mm -hmm. Completely different, it was completely different things. It was a platformer, it was a million different things before it became what it was. Did you have a team that you're working with? So I was working myself mostly, but as soon as I was uh, accepted into the transmedia zone, then they gave me a, a team of volunteers. So I had an intern as well as a few other sort of associate members. So I actually did have a writing room at one point that I tried to run. It was a very interesting experiment. We just sort of sit around and think about bird puns. Okay, um, so th yeah. there was actually a concrete time period uh, or a time allotment for you to discuss what seems to be, to me, the most important part of the game, the puns. Sort of, yeah. I mean, there was also, what was there? There was, the two engines were Port and Starbird. Those were okay. the two, Good. Starbird and then there wasn't much beyond that. You got like a little birdtastic message when you did something well. Sure. Um, okay. And I'm sure in the intro message, there were some good puns also. There were some other characters that I recall from the early game. Uh, did they make it into the, into the uh, cross-platform asymmetric version? They did not. Unfortunately, okay. Percival Penguin and Sus Swanman will yeah. need to wait for another game. Okay. Uh, will there be another or has this project taken a side... Uh, side position so this game itself 
I don't plan on on finishing this version of it. I sort of feel like I saw it through. I ended up going to Barcelona for this conference to present on it. Cool. I published the paper on it. it. It sort of exists as this experiment and a commentary on this type of gameplay. The okay. game itself, because I, the demo, let's say all the development, I did 100% myself. So I had a team that helped me with some of the 3D art, some of the concept, and with testing. But the actual coding and all of that was 100% me. And I, I did the whole thing five or six times as I iterated. Mm-hmm. So it's in this sort of state of like manic thesis held together by twigs and elastic bands and sticky tack. Mm-hmm. That makes me not want to go back and touch okay. it anymore. I also sure. feel like I've, I've come a ways. I've, I've developed as a developer. And... Uh, if I were to spend time on like a bird quest game, a VR bird quest game, I should say, I, I would want to start from the ground up. That being said, I am working on another bird related game that we can get into, but I want the focus to be the research. I'll let you decide when the time is to discuss that. Sure. Yeah. So uh, one thing that should be noted, I guess, super cool game idea. I'm, I'm glad that you were able to kind of close it off with the publication and now that it is kind of just floating in the VR academic ether for people to pick up and hopefully, um, hopefully, you know, build on. Have you been reached out to by anybody in the community who's found your paper and said, hey, I, I really like what you're doing. I'd like to do something similar. Or has this really just been kind of like a closed case ever since? I definitely get messages on LinkedIn. Cool. That are like, hey, I'm looking to do what you did with BirdQuest VR for like my whatever. Can you help me? Um, That's pretty cool. So that has happened. Um, What's your response to that? I just leave them on red. (laughs) Okay. So uh, note to the listeners, if you want to reach Michael Smilovich on LinkedIn, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm kidding. I'm sure I say like, hey, I'm working full time but I am always available for consulting depending on the scope of the project. Um, okay. You know, something And then you like never that. hear from them again. <laughs> well, I think usually people are trying to get information without paying me, mm-hmm. which I would rather they pay me for the information. Well, you could become a sort thing. of a consultant for your own kind of build. Yes, exactly. That, that's sort of the idea. And, and I've done some of that before. I've done sort of freelance game development and consulting sort of before and after that degree. So that's definitely something I'm down with. I think it's great. Would recommend. Cool. So yeah, one thing that I did want to mention is that uh, you are, you have finished this master's and since you finished, you did not go back to pursue a further graduate degree or any kind of certificate of any sort. I do know that you have taught a course or two at Ryerson. Right, so you're living in Toronto right now. You're originally from Montreal, but now in Toronto. What was your postgraduate experience like in the year or two following? So you 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 graduated. Uh, I graduated uh, a year ago, summer of year. 2019. Right. Okay. So in the last 12 months, what has the postgraduate experience been like? You said that you're currently working. Yeah. So so right after the program finished, uh, I applied for a few jobs in Toronto. I, I ended up getting the job I currently have. It's at an indie production studio focused on storytelling called Stitch Media. So I work for them as a software developer, these days mostly working on 
virtual reality. Uh, virtual reality games, I should say. Mm-hmm. And so obviously you don't have the same kind of freedom you had when you were rebuilding your bird quest from the ground up six times. Presumably you're working on more long-term projects now? Oh yeah. So I, I've been working for the most part on the same thing for this whole year. Right. Is it like an since, NDA or August, can you tell September. us a bit about what you're working on? I can't say much until it's like officially announced. Cool. Okay. But it's uh, a, a VR game. Are you working on anything asymmetric or cross-platform related? Or can you not even say that? That I like sort of, yes, but I can't say anything more than that. Okay, perfect. I just want to see if, if I can get as much privileged information as possible uh, to suck it out so that abstract cast can officially become the place where uh, cross-platform asymmetric VR information is disseminated. I think we have that on lock. Nice. Sweet. So I guess I maybe want to step backwards a little bit and figure out how you got to doing a graduate degree in VR. I'll be honest, when I was applying to grad school, if I didn't know you, I never would have thought there was even an opportunity to do something like that. In my head, um, at least with the background that you have, which hopefully you'll tell us about now, which is similar to mine, I could have never foreseen that would be the move. So maybe let us know a bit about what you did as an undergraduate and maybe how that led you to starting your grads, your, uh, your master's. Sure. So first to just to clarify is definitely not a master's in virtual reality. It was a master of digital media. A lot of people coming in were coming from sort of marketing backgrounds or even art backgrounds, a very diverse program. The idea was to sort of teach digital media, innovation, entrepreneurship, and, and all of these concepts, a little bit of development, but I was definitely the VR guy. There was nobody else doing VR but you. In this program? Yeah. Cool. Okay. So you had your own niche. Yeah. And I came in sort of with my demo ready and saying, I want to build on this and do something with this. Okay. Uh, so, so that was great. Uh, anyway, just to say, yeah, it, it would be weird. I don't think there are any master programs in VR development right now. You need to find your sort of online certificate. Okay. Fair enough. Anyways. I appreciate that you corrected that. No, that's great. So my background, I studied cognitive science at McGill for undergrad. So it was a, a, my major was cognitive science and my minor was English literature. I believe you ended up doing cognitive science as well. I also did. I, we, I remember having a discussion and sort of luring you over. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, so I, I guess you were graduating and I had, I think I was about one year into my, almost one year into my physics degree, God help me. <laughs> and I thought that was a great idea. Quick aside, I wanted to be an astrophysics professor since I was about 16. And then when I started doing physics, I realized it was not what I wanted to do because the road was way too, way too bumpy. But yeah, I had a, a lunch meeting with you, Michael, and you basically said, hey, I'm graduating in a program called Cognitive Science. I said, what's that? You said, go check out the link. I did, and it seemed super, super interesting. And that's what I ended up doing. So you said that you focused. So in Cognitive Science, just so people who don't know this, there are kind of six sub-disciplines that you can focus in. When you did it, the program was in its old form where you could actually pick two focuses apart yes. from a minor. And there were only five when I did it. Five? So when I did it, it was psychology, neuroscience, linguistics, philosophy, computer science. Okay. I think that's maybe it. It's just, I, I had the opportunity to do a couple of anthropology courses that were cognitive related. Ah, cool. So maybe that was kind of like the 5.5, the but yeah, so five sub-disciplines. That is actually, I always wanted to do anthro courses, but I could never fit them in. 
alas, I never too I late. Have a, a Once void you move back to Montreal, yeah, I have, I have no concept of how these uh, social structures work. work. Yeah, <laughs> what is no culture? <laughs> yeah, culture is highly asymmetric. By the way, uh, that's some that's some privileged anthropology knowledge right there. Wow. Highly sick. All right. So, what were the two focuses then for cognitive science for you of those five? On the books, it ended up being neuroscience and psychology, but okay. I also did about an equal amount of computer science to, to the neuro. Because your capstone class doesn't count as one of the ones from your focuses, it, I wasn't able to, to claim computer science as my secondary focus because mm -hmm. my artificial intelligence course was like my capstone. And they were like, oh, well, that's your capstone. It can't be a computer science course too. That wouldn't make any sense. We're scientists. No double here. dipping here. <laughs> slow down. You're going to take the slow road. Yeah. So cool. in a, it was basically psych, neuro, and a healthy dose of computer science, which ended up being spectacularly practical moving I, forward yeah you said that you basically were the sole developer for your vr game that you essentially taught yourself because i assume you know some of the knowledge you 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 gained in your you know computer science related undergraduate courses helped you to learn the new languages you might have needed to em employ to develop the vr game yeah so i first coded i suppose in sejep in college in Quebec before university. There was one elective course that was like an engineering programming course that taught us Java. And cool. it was awesome. I immediately sort of, it clicked for me. I felt good doing it. I felt confident doing it. I was able to write the code and make the code do stuff. And it felt really great. And uh, I really liked my computer science courses in, in cognitive science. I thought they were very cool. And it's, I think it's very cool that they're considered to be part of cognitive science, which leads into how cognitive science has to do with, with game development and virtual reality, especially, especially in a course like artificial intelligence, you know, you're learning about these neural networks, ways that technology imitates the human brain. Mm -hmm. So to, to kind of complete the, the timeline, I guess I, I finished my undergrad and cognitive science. And I worked for a year at the Douglas hospital in Montreal as a research assistant in Alzheimer's prevention research. It was a very technical a multimodal sort of research lab that was doing a lot of brain scans and then getting a bunch of data and comparing that data to um, a bunch of sort of other data questionnaires and things like that. Mm -hmm. So what I ended up doing was pretty much data science using my coding knowledge uh, in this job uh, to write sort of these things in Python, um, all sorts of stuff like that. It, it ended up being very technical which was cool. But after a year or so, I sort of found myself at this crossroads where my options were essentially PhD in neuroscience and then some postdocs to get a job. Or there was this six month nano degree that I was looking at in virtual reality development with Udacity. Very different options leading you down very different paths, presumably. Yeah. And I similarly had a few lunch meetings with people who were deep into their neuroscience PhDs. And the consensus seemed to be, unless you are a thousand percent sure you want this PhD in neuroscience, probably worth taking the six months making some VR games. Right. And then reevaluate worst case scenario. Yeah. So I know you to be a very creative individual. I know that if you were to do a PhD, if that was the road you took, there would have to be some creative component. And I almost think that 
it would it would be near near impossible to actually satisfy the creative needs that you have in such a technical program yeah that that's probably fair and it might even be easier to see as as someone who is not me like as an outside viewer into me being consistently like unfulfilled with less creative endeavors <laughs> Well, you said, you know, you specifically highlighted the fact that your, your job at the Douglas was quite technical, which to me, the way that you're saying it sounded like you're saying it was almost like too sterile in terms of creativity and like freedom. Sure. And that's also part of the role of being a research assistant. You know, it wasn't my experiment design or anything. Yeah. And it was, it was great work. It was interesting. I was saying technical more in the way that it just, I used the computer science stuff. That was kind of what I was right. speaking to. Okay. That being said, I, I at the time was very creatively unfulfilled and ended up writing a collection of neuroscience poems, which sort of as a poetry collection represents my need for a more creative technological application. That's great. I love that. Is that available for reading online? Can I pop a it link is. in the description? It is. I'd, I'd rather you pop a link for the for the BirdQuest paper first, but then you can put a link okay. to my neuroscience poetry collection. <laughs> All sorts of links. I mean, all of it is available on my website. Oh, so I could just leave a link to your website. How about that? Yeah. I mean, maybe we can do the individual ones too. We'll see. We okay. All sorts of things. We'll play around. It might not all, I don't know if the bird quest stuff is. Anyways, michaelsmilovich.com if you want to get sort of an overall view. But then Jeremy will also have some wonderful tailored links for you below for the people who want this hard specifics. Bird quest paper and then the, what was the second one we said? the neuroscience poetry mm -hmm. obscurity squared yeah is the name of the collection oh i would i would love to pull up the uh the review of your of your um neuroscience poetry oh there was a great one right what there was, was a okay, really good here. one about how, yeah okay can you pull it up please <laughs> all i know is i know the first line by by yeah, heart oh, it's just so good. it's just a, it starts with a quote it says Write something coherent and down to earth, I told myself, writes Michael Smilovich. Clearly, he didn't follow his own advice. True, true. I love it. I love it. And honestly, it was like my first really bad review that I got for anything. Was it bad? So or was important. it more like just, like just frank? It was, I suppose, frank. It wasn't like, it was like, there's some value here, but this guy clearly doesn't know how to write poems. Um, <laughs> okay. No, no, no. It's just all over the place. And which it was by design. It's called Obscurity Squared. Yeah. And, and that line the, that you quote is ironic. Room. Like it's explicitly an ironic line saying that like, <laughs> I'm trying to write something coherent and down to earth. And then the poem goes off and isn't that, mm -hmm. that is sort of the intent. So in any case, but all to say, I think receiving criticism and being able to handle a bad review or a lukewarm review or a frank review mm -hmm as a creative is an incredibly important skill to develop. I would say the same thing applies to an academic. You know, sure. like when you submit a paper to a, a journal, most likely you're gonna get some comments saying you need to change A, B, and C. Did you do any review process for your paper or did it just shoot right in there? There was, I had to do revisions, mostly formatting stuff because it had to be like super accessible. It had to be all prepped for screen readers and everything. So they had very strict guidelines and they had already provided sort of a template. Um, so I, I obviously reviewed the content with my supervisor and I got a ton of feedback from 
people, mm-hmm. but because it was a conference paper, I don't think they were editing the content unless I had any typos, which like I didn't, you know? Mm-hmm. So if there were like, I found them, they didn't find them. Like they were really small. For sure. I do want to highlight the fact that you are a great example of somebody who has kind of had their, their hands or feet in different pools. I don't know what the expression is, but you kind of dipped your toes into a bunch of different pools. You worked on an English lit minor in conjunction with neuroscience and computer science focus in your cognitive science. And then you ended up writing neuroscience poetry. Like you really just kind of brought everything together in this beautiful mesh of ideas and interests. And I I think that's actually quite inspiring. So for those listeners out there, if you have even completely disparate interests, bringing them together in the kind of way that Michael has demonstrated he's been capable of doing is something you might want to think about. Maybe you don't know how to reconcile all of your interests together, but with a bit of thought and a little bit of ingenuity, you too could get a very frank review about how you might need to change the way that you communicate. And this really is a podcast about communication, communicating clearly, simply, straightforward. What I do want to know, just to to kind of head back towards the VR side of things, now that we've gotten your background, which is great, I highly recommend cognitive science, by the way. If you are thinking about changing programs, cognitive science, do it, highly recommend. In terms of the VR work that you were doing, the way that you explained it, it seems like nobody really had put a lot of, or at least there was kind of a dearth in terms of the optimization of immersion. And so you kind of hit on that with your asymmetric cross-platform gameplay. In your opinion, what are some of the current most groundbreaking VR technologies or you know games out there? Aside from like you mentioned Fortnite in terms of its ubiquity and this asymmetry, Who's doing the craziest thing right now in VR and why? Sure. So I can talk about a few things. Please. Um, Fortnite is definitely not virtual reality. Yeah. I also was, was saying all sorts of wrong things about Fortnite. It's also not very asymmetric. Forget everything I said about Fortnite. <laughs> okay. they have a, people are talking about it enough. There's just yeah, for sure. Nothing so, else to say about yeah, them. Nothing to say about Fortnite here. Perfect. So in VR, you, you kind of have these two streams. You have people who are pushing forward VR gaming as this sort of high fidelity good graphics, like I want to put you in the middle of your favorite game. So something very historical that came out recently was Half-Life Alex. People were waiting for a new Half-Life game for over 10 years, and they released a new Half-Life game only in virtual reality. Now an issue in, in virtual reality gaming has been that there is a very, very small consumer market compared to the market of, let's say, a PlayStation game, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'd say a fraction, less than 10% of the market, because think about how many people have a PlayStation versus how many people have a VR headset, right? For sure. And you said earlier, you know, your, your estimate, however accurate or inaccurate it may be, was about 10% of people have tried it. So even fewer people will actually own their, their own physical VR hardware. Pretty much everybody that I know at some point in their life has owned either a Nintendo or Microsoft or Sony video game console. But because VR is so new, the market must definitely not be there. Yeah, so, so it's a risk for a game, for a company to make something. And when they do make something, they don't want to spend the same amount of money that they would spend on a big blockbuster game. Mm-hmm. So there's this sort of standoff, this Cat 22, where a lot of people are waiting to buy the headsets because they're waiting for that killer app. They're waiting for that game, for that, I'm going to buy the Switch so I can play Zelda and Mario, right? Because those mm-hmm. are well-known 
IPs that only Nintendo has. I need that console to play those games. That's how you sell a console. That's how you sell a gaming console. What's an IP? Intellectual property. Cool. So in, in, in gaming, you refer to IP as Nintendo has Mario. That's Nintendo's IP. Uh, Sony has God of War and Kratos. That's their IP. And it, similarly, like you get a lot of reboots and remakes, right? And there's less and less new IP. It's, it's rare for a company to say, we have this totally new idea for a game with a new character you've never heard of before because those things are inherently riskier. Same reason you see a lot of reboots and remakes in the box office because it's a safe bet for mm. an investor. Okay, fair enough. Good parallel there. I like that. Yeah. So in any case, for the high fidelity stuff, uh, Valve with Half-Life Alex really pushed things forward. They have these really interesting controllers that you can sort of let go of. It gives you a lot of finger presence. It lets you poke things. You can make all sorts of fun hand gestures. Very, very cool. So that's great for sort of high quality gaming. The issue is the Valve Index, which is sort of the high end device you want to buy for that, is like over a thousand bucks requires these like external sensors. You got to set up this for these tripods with sensors and you need a gaming PC to run it, which is going to run you another two grand or so. So it's like over $3,000 to play this game in its optimal kind of state. Right. So mm -hmm. that's not a very, it's a hard sell. <laughs> yep. I'm, I'm definitely not sold. Exactly. That's a lot of cash. So that's for the game. kind of hardcore enthusiasts. Yeah, exactly. Well, just to be able to play that and to presumably be able to play similar games. Right. On the other end, you have these much more sort of casual mobile platforms. So Oculus is really paving the way with that. They have this thing called the Oculus Quest, which is 400 bucks. It does everything inside out. It can see with these cameras in the headset. It has the controllers. So you just map out the space in your room, or let's say you're in your living room, you draw a little square on the ground, and then you're in VR, the headset remembers the room. So it's a great way as a consumer to jump in very quickly. But because it's mobile and wireless, it's not as good necessarily for a developer who wants to really develop something intense on the computer. So the Oculus Quest cannot really handle the same kind of intensity of like information flow or i think in the video game world there's something called triangles which is like a measurement of like how detailed an environment is yeah so we can get into the nitty-gritty if you'd like essentially not necessarily yet but not yet okay sorry. <laughs> not yet but we might not yeah. that deep light very lightly let's yeah. just tread upon the nits and grits mm -hmm. carefully with our slippers on for now yes. oh 100 uh, but i should just say that these high-end headsets and high-end virtual reality is always running off of a gaming computer, off of a powerful computer. And the main idea behind that is games need to render. Games need to draw the 3D world that you're seeing every frame. So when you hear that a game is running at 60 FPS, right, 60 frames per second, the idea is that that game, your computer, and I, probably your graphics card of your computer, is drawing that 3D environment, doing all the, necessarily all the necessary calculations to calculate the lighting, how the lighting's bouncing, how any physics objects are moving, how your player's moving, all of that, every frame needs to be calculated on the computer and then drawn, and that has to happen 60 times every second if you're in a 60 FPS game. Mm -hmm. In virtual reality, you have two eyes and two screens, and actually the way that it simulates you being in a space is it has to draw slightly different versions of the world on either screen to simulate like retinal disparity, right? The For idea sure. that your eyes are in different places 
And that's how it simulates depth. That's why you feel like you're in a different world. So it's twice as computationally expensive to render VR as it is Whoa. to render a normal game. So 60 frames per second is in VR is like 120 frames per second for a regular game. Sort of, yeah. And something like Half-Life Alex, they're trying to hit 90 frames per second because it's on your head and you can move your head. So it has to account for the way that you're moving your head and make it seem like you're controlling this as fast as you could possibly move your head. So, the so lag it's even more. Yeah, so oh the idea God. is that these high-end things are running off of computers with very expensive graphics cards in order to get you these like nice, wonderful graphics with all of that uh, speed. But the mobile ones are trying to do something completely different. They want to be accessible. They want you to carry this in your bag, throw it on. So the difference in quality visually between a game running on a, a Valve Index plugged into a $2,000 gaming computer versus the Oculus Quest, which is 400 bucks and has essentially the processor from a Pixel 2 in it. A Google Pixel different. phone. Yeah, Google Pixel phone. So it's very interesting as a developer because when you're developing for the Oculus Quest, you're developing for mobile and everything you do is about optimizing, about tricking, not tricking, but building in a very clever way to fit everything onto this device, have it look decent and have it hit frame rate. What's like the minimum frame rate you could have uh, before things get noticeably really like unrealistic? Like a, um, a movie is 24, right? Yes, a movie is 24, but it's not attached to your face and mm -hmm. it's not reacting to your input. So very true. At 24, and you can still play a game at 24 FPS, it's fine. In VR, you want, I want to say anything less than 30, you'd probably really notice. If you're at half of 60, then they can kind of cheat it. They can do this thing where they interpolate between frames. So oh, so one eye really... refreshes and the other one refreshes? No. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> it would be a really bad time. No, <laughs> okay. no. What they do is actually, it, they, they fake 60 frames per second by rendering every second frame and then performing an interpolation calculation to generate a fake frame in between those. Oh, that's okay. Right. So that's basically almost, that's making me think of a flip book where like you're simulating motion, even though like most of the information is actually not there. Right. But your brain yeah. is doing the interpolation there. Yeah. In this case, it's not your brain. It's, it's a little program that it's, it's faster to make a fake in between frame from these two frames we've already drawn than to draw the frame itself. Cause that would take too long, too many milliseconds, you know? Yeah. And when you're really in the weeds, uh, it, it's actually kind of amazing. And, and this is something I love about game development. You're looking at what your CPU and GPU are doing at like every millisecond essentially and saying like, Oh, if we have a free 10 milliseconds here, why don't we go and like render this crap, uh, you know, so that we can have a better sort of frame loop. There's all these really good talks about how they do that for the new Spider-Man. You fully lost me the 10 words Sorry. before frame loop, yeah. including frame loop. So, so basically it, the best way to illustrate this idea, I guess, I'll just leave it with, with kind of, there's this great talk. Uh, it's a called, it's a technical postmortem on the latest Spider-Man game that Sony made. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about what the kind of graphics card in the PlayStation is doing on a millisecond to millisecond basis. Sure. So they're saying, we found that, you know, the, the CPU, the GPU finished drawing the frame and then there were these extra 10 milliseconds. So what we did was we used those 10 milliseconds to like pop in this other stuff. Okay. So that really optimized. I see. And, they basically yeah. analyzed 
what was going on inside the graphics card. Yeah, because they have to tell it what to do in mm-hmm. order to make this game work, right? Sure. Because someone's telling you we need to render all of New York City with this computer because the PlayStation is just sort of the standardized computer. And then it's like, all right, well, how are we going to do that? We need to think of a clever way to do it. We need to make it happen. Okay. And they can do that. Have you seen this game? Is it like, does it look good? Yeah. So, so it's the latest Spider-Man game. If you've seen the Sony Spider-Man game, it was great. It was, it was critically acclaimed. Okay. And I have played it. I, I definitely play a lot of games. <laughs> To stay you know abreast. how to have fun. I got to stay so, abreast. It's research. Yeah, 100%. I, I like that you said that you play a lot of games because games are fun and they're good and you also study them. So how do you, uh, this, is, this is, I guess, the question of the day is how do you maintain a healthy work-life balance, Michael, with all this game playing? When do you get any work done? How do you motivate yourself? It's COVID-19 right now. I, I, I don't even like talking about it anymore, but it must be addressed. It's clearly not affecting your research because you're not currently researching, but how is it affecting your work-life balance? How do you manage games? Tell us everything in the next three minutes. Sure. Yeah, so I play a lot of games, but generally when I'm playing them, I'm playing them a little bit critically. I'm noticing things about design, but I also just very much enjoy games. I like games a lot. I find them kind of this great cathartic escape you can just zone into and play. So I play games most nights, whether that's with friends online or by myself. And I, I work during the day. It's a fairly simple nine to five thing. There's a lot of flexibility and everything is remote now. So, you know, there's, there's always, sometimes you have a slow morning, sometimes you have a slow afternoon. I think it's the same as being in the office. Obviously things are kind of tense for everyone. People are generally understanding and sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that things don't really go at the same pace, you know, a lot of games, big AAA games, AAA games are sort of the blockbuster games by the big companies. A lot of those have been delayed because of COVID, because your workflow completely changes. You can't just walk over to someone's desk anymore. It it becomes a bit more complicated. And I I do think that there is a way for the remote workflow to be as productive, but it takes time and and organization and, and effort to develop a new remote workflow that is as productive as what we were so used to before. If you could kind of just describe in like a couple of sentences, some of the things that you've had to adapt in your own workflow, like how would you describe that? And in terms of like actual changes that you've noticed you've had to implement. Yeah. I think in the office, you know, you stand up, you walk around a lot more when, and there's people you talk, people walk to get lunch. It's, it's tricky. It's easy to fall into the trap of just sitting at your desk the entire day. And then you're like, Oh, work's done time to play games. And then you just sit at your desk the entire night. So a big thing is like standing up um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I've been trying to do that a a little bit when possible. It's the simple things like standing. Little things we are, like standing. We are, we are upright bipedal organisms. We should be yeah. using our feet a little more than our buttockses. Exactly. Or buttock, buttai. Yes. But. So I try to stand. I try to get outside most days if possible. Mm-hmm. Just getting away from screens. If you're spending your whole day on screens, getting away, reading, taking your lunch. Away from a screen. Away from a screen. Okay. Bury that face in a book. Oh, yeah, Are you reading just, anything right now, Michael? I am. I'm reading Neuromancer by William Gibson. Is that a graphic novel? No, it's a sci-fi novel from the 80s. Okay. It's the first book to use the term cyberspace. Ooh, and it is okay. about sort of this drugged up 
uh, fun cyberpunk dystopia where people kind of physically hack by like going into this matrix type thing and flying around and seeing these like visual psychological representations of code. Sounds like fun. It is. It is a romp. It sounds immersive. Are you addicted to immersion, Michael? I think we're all addicted to immersion. Ooh, okay. <laughs> all right, that, that's, that's the episode then. I think we're all addicted to immersion. Um, there is really one last question though that I'd like to ask. I have asked all of my guests before and we, we are going to end on this. This has been super enjoyable. I'm happy to learn about uh, VR. I'm glad you shared your research in what turned out to be a very accessible way apart from a couple of acronyms that we had to spell out, but that's what they're there for. So to close off today, I will ask you this. Three words to describe yourself as an academic. Three words to describe yourself as a non-academic. And are those sets of words identical or completely different? Ooh, okay. I mean, this is intense, but it can also say... be one word or two words. Three words is actually quite a lot, I've noticed, but one to three words. I want to say like never compromise. Never so compromise. what I've always done is I, I've always, I've always had these, these seemingly disparate things that seem like you can't, you, people always say you can't do everything. Mm-hmm. And that's true to an extent, but you can also bend the rules and you can also make your own thing. Like a neuroscience poetry. Like neuroscience poetry. And you can also take a program like cognitive science that lets you take five different programs in one. Right. Yeah, and, and, and something that I was thinking about earlier when you were talking about kind of combining these different ideas is doing two seemingly very different things will make you a lot better at each of those individual things. And they'll make you unique in either of those fields because you can cross-pollinate and you can bring things from the other field into whichever. So I think mix and match are my three words. Oh, okay. So we're doing like a phrase. Mix, mix and, and match. match. Tell me, how does how does and describe you, Michael? <laughs> no, oh, I get it. I, I'm a big improv guy. Match. I'm very yeah. all about yes and. Yes and perfect. So n- never compromising, mixing and matching. I think that makes sense. And you would describe yourself. At, that felt like more of the 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 non-academic version, but I guess academic as well. In that you took the cognitive science route, so. You would well, academically, yeah. academically moving forward, I think if I, I would like to eventually do a PhD, but I would want to do it in, you know, I'd like to do a deep dive into the neuroscience of gaming or, you know, maybe even do some really like postmodern game stuff like, you know, games as emotion machines, um, you, you know, using games as this form of like high art rather than entertainment. Mm-hmm. Right, the same way that we have all this crazy research done on, you know, visual art and music, which are and film. These are these older mediums. Gaming's a lot younger, and I, I'm just hoping that academically, I could get into the artistic research elements of of gaming, research gaming as an artistic medium, and push that forward, and, and hopefully have it accepted more as an artistic medium. I think that's a great plan. I'd love to see what that PhD would look like. And maybe when that, that time does come and you hop back into a PhD, we can have you back on the podcast and hear about the lovely things you're doing with that. Oh yeah. The podcast so is going to be uh, going to be massive by that. 
there, there should be quite a few episodes uh, by the time that you are nearing to finish your PhD that no longer, that does not yet exist. So I guess we'll leave that until then, but I hope to have you back on if and when that happens. So thanks again, Michael. Really appreciate you having on the podcast and have a great afternoon. For sure. You too. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.